For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review show where we talk about true crime, podcasts, TV shows, really pretty much anything. Why did you change the intro? I don't know. Just Do you need it written down? Feels a little different this week, you know? Uh, and this week, of course, we have a special Rewind episode, and here to help me get that done is my husband, co-author, co-podcaster, I love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. So, what do we have going on this week? We're going to be listening to season one of the classic true crime podcast, Accused. Oh, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, so a couple of things to orient you. By the way, we did not give this a thumbs up. Really? Yeah, we were doing letter grades. Oh, okay. All right, so you'll have to figure out at the end where we where we fall. I hope I gave it a good one. I think so. I always put season one on my list of like one of my favorite true crime podcasts, so you know. You're ready to go back and listen to it? I'm ready to go back and listen to it. A couple of things. You know, we, sp- we spent a lot of time talking about uh, journalism mm-hmm. and sort of the things around that, transparency, and do you remember the DA? Yes. Who wouldn't answer that Amber's question? That guy. Yeah. The guy she chased in the courthouse. Yes, oh. yes, yes. So uh, just to orient everybody as we jump into the tape, you started this episode with- an interview with Amber and Amanda, mm-hmm. who are the two producers and the host of the show. And so coming out of that, you asked me what I th- thought of them. And I said, they were spunky. <laughs> Just like what's going to happen to your hair when you use dot, dot, dot. So there was a little bit of- An ad transition. There was an ad transition. So that's what this means. I'm a Kevin apologist. What, what did the uh, the guy call- uh, A little woman. Uh, you little, coquettish <laughs> little woman. He called her a little yeah, girl. Yeah, he, he called her a little girl. A little the first girl. Time. <laughs> Silly little girl. Silly little girl. <laughs> if I could answer seriously, I give them a lot of credit and I kind of look up to them. I do think that, okay, maybe spunky isn't the right word, but they- Showed a lot of gumption. Is that a better word? It's like it's adorable. Old, it's adorable. But How about he, saying they have balls? How about How that? About relentless. Okay, here's what I was. They had vision. Right. That I think that if you are working at a newspaper, and Laura, you know, you don't have to speak directly to your employer, but I would imagine that when you go to a, a newspaper editor and say, "I have this idea for this story to now be a podcast," that that would just seem like completely out of left field, right? Yeah, I mean, what this has kind of got me thinking about is I just feel like we're kind of witnessing a little bit maybe the evolution of journalism as print newspapers are having a harder and harder time. There seem to be more newspapers that are freeing reporters up to do projects like this, which I think is awesome. But I'm just amazed because I think it's probably a really hard sell. You know, staff numbers are getting lower and lower at all the newspapers I know. And for them to give Amber and Amanda a year to work on this, it's pretty amazing. Now, Laura, did you find this podcast as addicting as I found it? I did. So it started off a little slow and I was listening to it. And, you know, I'm one of those people like some people can listen to a podcast at any time. I have to either be in my car or somewhere where I'm not distracted. But once I got onto the episode where she started talking about the three other mm-hmm. people that should have been questioned, I just like plunked myself down on the couch for like two hours and couldn't stop listening because I needed to listen to the next episodes. Mm -hmm. Toby, one of the things that struck me listening to this podcast and being like so hooked on this podcast was that we're talking about a 37-year-old murder case, right? We're talking about somebody who lives not close to us, who would be a lot older than us, were she alive. 
And there is this idea that like when you tell a story like this, and I think this is the hardest part of any story, you have to make your audience care about the case and about the person they're talking about. Do you think it was successful the way they laid it out? And if so, why do you think it worked? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it did seem to me more like reading a detective novel than some of the other stuff we've looked at where there's been particularly somebody who's in jail who might be who might be innocent. So there was none of that. I mean, it's really, you know, there is a, a person who's guilty walking around because they never got anybody for it, right? I, I think it came more down to sort of the, you know, the circumstances behind her death and the fact that there were a bunch of different people who you could conceivably point the finger at. And then the fact that the police just again, did sort of, at least in hindsight, a fairly inadequate job of investigating. If there was any criticism, and I, and I really liked it, I thought it was really well done. I think that you've kind of hit upon it, is that there wasn't that kind of immediacy that, you know, having a guy who's like sitting in jail, like Adnan, that kind of lent a little more, um, urgency. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's the right word. Uh, a sense of urgency that this didn't have. But it, I, I thought it overcame that problem really effectively through good reporting and, you know, I think even better storytelling. What do you think, Kevin? Did you find the podcast addictive? And, and how do you think that she dealt with the almost 40 year old case and making us care about it? I didn't really get into it until about the third episode, which is not surprising because I, I didn't think the first episode of Serial Season 1 was the strongest. I had to drag you kicking and screaming into really getting into Serial, if you remember correctly. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. and you know, we, and we had been seeing people tweet at us for weeks about accused. And for full disclosure, when people tweet at us relentlessly about something, we are a little bit bratty about it. Like, ugh. Oh, they're saying we got to do this Ugh. thing. Uh. No, and by the way, I don't want to say our listeners shouldn't suggest things. That is not your problem. That it's, is yeah. our problem. Well, no, it's, it's like, you know, there's tweeting four or five different things. Well, that was, yes. And to be you know. fair, a lot of things do get tweeted at us that we sort of try and don't mm -hmm. like. And then we just feel like we want to be polite. Yes. We don't want to be like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that because we hate it. Yeah. So, yeah. So this was definitely sent to us a whole bunch. And then I started listening and I was like, you need to listen to this. Yeah. So at first it felt like an assignment because I knew we were going to talk about it, but then I really liked it. You know, this was the most transparent on the investigative side and the news gathering side, more so than serial. We love Bill Rankin's podcast, Breakdown, right? right? But that podcast doesn't pretend to be a podcast first. Like, it doesn't. He's just like, I'm a newspaper reporter and I'm just talking into a microphone and uh -huh. telling you what I want to tell you. The thing, when you talk about transparency, the difference to me between this and like a radio produced podcast is that typically in a radio produced podcast, you would hear a lot of setup into a sound bite, and then you would hear the sound bite, and then you would hear setup out of the sound bite. So, like in Serial, you hear Sarah Koenig tell you what you're about to hear, give you context, then you hear sort of the heart of the thing, and then out of it, she talks some more, gives her analysis of it. This, we heard more of the sound, but it mm -hmm. wasn't boring. Like hearing the sound was actually well, part well, of the story. Well, right. I mean, when you go to a, a restaurant, what you want to do is you want to sit down and you want to eat the meal. You don't want to see a lot of the chef cooking up the dish. Some people might find that interesting. Here's the way where they make it really interesting. And, and I found it very interesting because, you know, I was a reporter and I recognized a lot of myself and my delivery and my way of dealing with people that I'm interviewing. It's just like Amber. I mean, I really felt like we were kindred spirits in the way we would deal with people and, and the way we would try to get people to talk and to keep them going and sort of the I'm really trying to bite my lip when you're being a dick to me 
you know, those interviews. Toby, what about the interactions we hear Amber having with her subjects? You know, in particular, her conversations with law enforcement experts, with Buzz Call. Do you like hearing those reporter subject conversations laid out as that and not as a series of sound bites with talk arounds in and out of them? How did you feel about that part of the podcast? Well, I think it, you know, we were talking about tension and I think that really added to it. I think especially hearing the way it's particularly older men spoke to her and the way she kind of handled that and the way she kind of handled asking questions that I think she anticipated that the subject would find objectionable or difficult to answer. She had sort of this disarming laugh that she would use sometimes, which I think would kind of break the tension a little bit between her and the other person. But I do think, I I don't know if it would work this well with everybody, but you did get a sense of what she was up against in investigating this. I actually thought those parts of the podcast were really interesting. We got to hear it. This is a seasoned, experienced crime reporter, and I don't think she's coquettish at all. And when the guys used that word, like I was really shocked because she seems comes across as very straight to me. Like she's just doing her job and she's doing her due diligence and the shoe leather stuff that reporters do. And we got to experience, it feels like firsthand when you're listening to a podcast, I'm going to call it firsthand, we got to experience firsthand that there is a discrimination, sort of like being talked down to, that is clearly gender-based. This was not where you're like, well, maybe it's because I'm a woman. No, he called her a little woman. Like, he used those words. Laura, what did you think of that part of the podcast, and what did you think about those conversations that we heard? Yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed that, and, I, and I've been in that situation. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you start to feel like after a certain point as a reporter, when you've been doing this for a long time, you feel like you maybe should have earned some respect, but it's still, you know, I still have people talk to me like I'm 10 years old when I go out to do interviews, but more from a storytelling standpoint, to me, it made her almost more of sort of like a mystery protagonist in this story. Mm-hmm. We're kind of going along with her struggles and kind of following along as she's investigating play by play. Like she's up in the middle of the night thinking about it. She's doing an interview with her child crying in the background. She's trying to find where the DA is going to be so she can pounce upon him and hopefully get some sort of comment. But we're following along with her, you know, much likely we would be following along with a mystery sleuth. And that's sort of how I was listening to it. Right. I agree with you. And to me, that's why I felt that it was addictive, because she was the central figure in the story. And she discloses that at the beginning. And that actually brings me to my next question, Laura. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We've talked a lot in other podcasts about the central question and how it's important to have a central question. I think we talked about that a lot with someone knows something. You know, what is the central question? You know, what happened to Adrian? Well, did the podcast get us there? We don't know. Her central question here, she lays it out at the beginning. She wants to solve the case, whether it's her or the police, like she wants the case solved. Do you think that was a ballsy central question to sort of lay out at the beginning and just tell listeners right away, like, that's my goal here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I want to go back over the case and see and talk about it. No, it was like, I'm going to solve this case. And then, you know, listening to her, she was really on that path quite doggedly throughout this podcast. So I liked that again, but it's it's more like a traditional mystery. Like, we're going to set out to solve the murder. And this is the person who's going to do it. She's like our Nancy Drew. And in the end, hopefully, we're going to know what happened. I don't necessarily think I know what happened, but I, you know, I have a few pretty good working theories at the end of this, thanks to the way that she reported it. I, I suppose it's, you know, a pretty good idea to come right out and say, uh, my goal here is to solve the murder or solve the mystery. 
when a lot of different podcasts and TV shows don't quite come out and say that. Probably the only negative thing I would give to the podcast is if that's the goal, then you're really setting yourself up for a disappointing ending. But this is an ongoing enterprise. I mean, I think that if the objective here is the victim's family's lawyer came to her with this case because they want a resolution. So everyone is pursuing the same truth, which is singular. Honestly, no other podcast we've listened to has that at the heart of it, maybe in the dark a little bit. But, you know, that was really Madeline's enterprise, like finding out what the police did wrong. You know, the more I listen to it, the more you realize that Jacob Wetterling's parents They aren't necessarily about finding more truth. It's about just sort of like reconciliation for them. This is a unique situation that she's in, right? Where the case was brought to her by the victim's parents. She's holding law enforcement to account. They have an acquitted suspect. We have somebody who was acquitted in a case, right? Right. Very, very different approaching an investigation here. And she's asking questions that I think aren't really answered very often. Like, what do you do when you have an acquittal? Yeah, I mean, sometimes people who are on trial for murder are acquitted because they didn't do it. And sometimes they're acquitted because they did it, but the prosecution couldn't prove it. So what ends up happening with the status of that case and that victim? Just because there's an acquittal, why does that become a cold case now? I mean, is there anybody out there looking for Nicole Brown Simpson's killer right now? Yeah. You know, so it's it's hard to say, okay, this is different because X. It's almost as if you have to get some kind of physical evidence that proves Bob is not the killer in the same way as if he were in jail at the same time. Because and there are still people in law enforcement who are like, no, we got the right guy. It almost reminds me of the Adnan Syed case in that mm-hmm. way. Like Adnan's in prison, so law enforcement and prosecutors are more able to say, we got the right guy, period, and not do more, right? Right. This guy's not in prison. No. And he was he, found not guilty twice. Yeah, and if he had been convicted, I mean, a lot of like that evidence would have been held on to, would have been storage right. for an appeal. Right. It might be around today so that they could do different kinds of testing on it. Right. If in the police mind they got the right guy and just the, the prosecutor couldn't get the conviction, at what point do you stop? Is it incumbent upon the police every time – they get somebody and these they're found not guilty to go and pursue some other angle that they don't believe exists. But I don't think the current police investigator working this case thinks they got the right guy. It was the previous right. one and mm-hmm. then the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. However, I, the evidence didn't match. Like it didn't match in any way. You can make a case with a non's case, even if you have what some people believe to be like bullshit experts who put together a bullshit evidence. Like if you believe he's guilty, you're able to put together like what some might say would be like a bullshit trail to prove that he's guilty. Mm-hmm. Aside from the fact that there was this uh, false confession, which I know not everybody believes exists, except that it does. Like there's a lot of data that show that it does. Right. There's no evidence at all pointing to the fact that Bob committed this crime. Right. And, and the tidbits that are out there about these other suspects are really interesting. Right. I know there are three viable alternative suspects that investigators have talked about, that the, v- the VDOC Society talked about. And then there's a fourth that came up in the podcast that also, I think, has been pointed to by investigators. But we have RJ, the friend from high school who had the crush on Beth. We had Buzz, Beth's boss, the one who had the contentious conversation Mm -hmm. with Amber. We had Steve, the handyman, who she also interviewed. And then we have the dead guy, Boyd Glasscock, whose story is, I think, unsettling in a lot of ways. Inserted himself in the case. He's the one who brought Bob the 
pin cushion covered with a mysterious red substance that Bob didn't think anything of at the time. What are your thoughts, Kevin, about the fact that we sort of learn about and actually hear from three-ish, maybe two, uh, Uh, potential suspects in this case? I thought that was great. I mean, I think having listened to three out of the four, but certainly like on paper, the two hottest leads, not including Glasscock, who's already passed away, it really changed the way I felt about either of them Mm -hmm. as a suspect. Now, it's very naive because the way they talk whether they have a nice personality or a bad personality doesn't necessarily make them a killer. You mean, are you talking about Buzz's bad personality? I'm, no, I'm not going to point out. <laughs> you, you you can draw your own opinion. <laughs> Being a grumpy pants maybe doesn't make you a more viable suspect. I agree with that completely. Uh, however, it does make you kind of, you know, wonder more about do I believe this or that? Laura, what did you think about the fact that we got to hear from I don't know. I kind of think that the fact that we actually got to hear from the three guys makes a difference. What are your feelings about that? That was when I was having my I can't stop listening because I wanted to hear from these guys. But I felt I have to say I felt a little uncomfortable when she was calling them to talk to them in the way that they were kind of leading in because it was like, well, I just kind of want to talk to you because of this case and your name came up. And then I don't want to say they were blindsided because they knew why she was calling, but it was I felt like a little bit awkward in terms of these three, four people definitely being put out there with their names, because usually names of suspects are not released in cases like this. That to me seemed kind of unusual, but it definitely, again, sort of set it up because each one that I'm listening to, I'm thinking, oh, this guy is totally the one who did it. And then I'm like, well, maybe not. Right. And then the next one, I'd have the same, oh, and then the guy who was like, what's your name again? That was Buzz Call, yeah. Yeah, that was the guy. You know, but each one I felt like had certain points to it that I was like, oh, like the bloody pincushion. Um, that was you know, strange. The, yeah, he's, yeah, he's no longer alive. So we can talk about him a little bit more than yeah. we have. Yeah. Kevin, what did you think about that detail about the bloody pincushion? It's creepy. And it does, you know, if you talk about overkill, which is how Beth died with the strangulation and then all the stabbing. There would be some kind of passion behind that. And if it's not I'm being jilted, it's I'm jealous. And it sounds like, from all accounts, that he had a crush on Bob. Maybe. All right. But but that seems to be some of what they're digging up. You know, I think that the, the profilers intimated that that kind of personality fits this crime. It sounds like the VDOC Society thought that he was the suspect. Toby's like suspiciously silent over there. I don't know if it's because he knows he's on video and he's shy. But Toby, what did you think of this part of the podcast? You know, I thought it was compelling. I have some of the same problems that Laura had with kind of naming these people. So many years later. But they're um, in all of the news accounts about the story. I mean, you can just look up the newspaper clippings and they're in them. I mean, these guys have all are all being looked at or have been looked at and they've all been but, written about. But in the 70s, right? I mean, this is 40 years ago. So there, there's that. There's quite a bit of insinuation about Glasscock. At least the way he's presented is that he was at that time or at least became fairly seriously mentally ill. You know, I think there's a tendency to take a look at people who are mentally ill and acting strangely and looking at that as being perhaps an indication of guilt. When in fact, it's the indication of a troubled mind. I had that reservation. They all, the way they were all portrayed, every single one of them was like, it was like an Agatha Christie novel, right? It's like, it could be that guy. It could be that guy. He had a motive too. You know, he had opportunity. 
But in the end, there's no evidence for any of them. There's no reason why you would think any of them was more likely than Bob. I would think they were all more likely than Bob. At least it was three of the four of them. I I don't think RJ, and I don't think she necessarily pointed to him, but it has come up that at some point he was looked at because of his, you know, crush on Beth and because Mm -hmm. of his continued belief that Bob is guilty or his uh, outward belief that Bob is guilty. I actually think scary. It is a little bit strange. I mean, do we all agree, by the way, I should have said this. Do we all agree that Bob didn't do it? I I don't think Bob did it. Just explain to me why that's kind of off the table. First of all, it's a stretch for me to believe he could have done it because the timing doesn't work out at all. The fact that he was the one who called the cops to report it, the fact that he didn't know anything about whether or not she had been like shot or stabbed even. You know, if it was a book. Right. Right. If it was fiction. That would totally be the way you would do it, though. You'd give a confession, right. but it would be wrong, and right. then that would be the way that you'd get off. Oh, yeah, but if you had, like, were, had just graduated from college and you were, like, 22 years old, I don't know. That's, like, quite the I don't think in the, in the 1970s anybody would have given credence to a false confession. I'm not trying to make that case. Right. You know, right. I don't, it's not that I think Bob necessarily did it, but in the course of listening to the podcast and I might have missed something, but you know, at the end, it didn't seem to me, I didn't feel like there was a very compelling case against any of them. So Laura, can you just put your reservations aside for a second? Yeah. Were there any details about any of these guys? And you don't have to say whose name it is if you don't want to, but were any of the details about any of these guys and their involvement in the cases stick out to you insofar as it would make you want to take a closer look or hope that the police would interview one of these guys? Because I think that really is Amber and Amanda's game here, end game here, is they they want the authorities to talk to the right people. They've said that over and over again. They said that to me. Are there any details that stuck out to you that would make you tell your friend who's a cop, hey, you should go talk to that guy? Yeah, I have to say, I got stuck on, was it the boss that was supposedly hanging out with her? Yeah. And then everybody yeah. was like, that's totally not something that she would have done. And he was and friends seemed, with the cop. Yes. And he was friends with the cop. I mean, that one to me, like, I was like, huh. And he was the one, if I recall, that got so confrontational with her also. Like, to me, that's when I had like a big red flag when I was listening. And I was like, ooh, That's interesting. And then I'm thinking, oh, and they've got the new cop on the case who's definitely taking it pretty seriously and he's very diligent. Um, So that was one scene that stuck out to me. It seemed odd, but it seemed also like, oh, well, that would explain why he said he was in the house because he had to explain why any fingerprints or whatever would have been there. So it was that they were hanging out. So that to me definitely was one of the things that kind of stood out. And the new detail about the phone down the street is also very interesting. There's a lot of things about that that stick out to me that are interesting. Again, you have to kind of draw your own conclusion as to what that means because it's an open case. It could mean anything. It could mean that he just wanted to have people think they had a better relationship than they actually had. It honestly could just be that. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) is it worse to be thought of as a killer or worse to be thought of as a creeper? Yeah, it's a strange detail, but you make of it what you will because we don't know and the police haven't charged anybody. Now, I was saying before that I don't know how literally they were speaking of when they said that they're passing along tips to the authorities because, you know, when you talk about I want to solve the case, suppose during one of those phone calls, somebody confesses. Well, Amber and Amanda aren't going to go down and do a citizen's arrest. That's right. You have to kind of wonder, like, realistically, again, what does that mean, solving the case? And as a reporter, you can't act as an agent for the government. Something you know a little bit about. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the police can't have you acting as an agent for them. So 
you know, this question came up during the jinx where they had evidence that showed that uh, Robert Durst seemed to confess to the murders. And it was captured on audio months before the documentary came out. And there was criticism of, well, shouldn't they have contacted the police they right away? They could have. They certainly could have. They could have. But, you know, the professional code of conduct for journalists would be that you don't do that and that you run your story and you let the investigators. But do you wait eight months to run your yeah, story? Yeah, do you sit but on your story that long? That you, was the issue there. I, I'm not throwing Amanda and Amber under the bus, you know, as far as what their cooperation level is. And I'm not saying that. I know that it's it's beyond it's crossed some line it's or not, whatever. They're just waiting. But yeah, they're waiting. Right. This is what we talked about in the interview. Maybe I cut part of this out so you didn't hear whole the whole context. They know that they have reporting that they've uncovered things that the police also know about. Mm-hmm. They don't want to become agents of the police. They don't want to do anything that could make them end up being a witness in court or have them know something that the police don't know and put themselves in that position or they're out in that position. And they also don't want to in any way interfere with that business. So they, I think, are walking the line very, very ethically. But they also know the police know some stuff that they also know. And they also know that they shouldn't do anything about it because the police might be doing something about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, then there's also the other stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, know a detective on the cold case unit and we bullshit. And like he tells me things that, <laughs> you know, that like if I were to write about, you know, jam us both up. But it's just because reporters and cops, you know, talk. And right. that's how you uh, ingratiate yourself and create relationships. But I think that this is one of those cold cases that he would say, and I think the other things would say, there are cold cases that you know you could solve. Right. And I think in this case, Beth's murder is solvable. If only it becomes a cold case. If only it actually becomes a cold case, yeah. Toby, what did you think about the episode that focused on whether or not a serial killer could have committed this murder? I thought it was pretty weird. Um, (laughs) Seems like in a lot of these, that's kind of what gets sort of thrown out there as like an alternative theory. Because that definitely did come up in the first season of Serial. And then there was that weird thing that was on the internet for a while about some like famed serial killer, like potentially being in the background of a shot in the Manitowoc County Courthouse. That's right. He actually came up in this podcast, too, that it could have been him. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, well, if we can't solve it, maybe it was a serial killer. You know, I thought it was the point that they were making about how at that time and in that area, there was a lot of serial killers sort of active was kind of an interesting kind of historical thing, but how it fit in with the rest of what they were doing, that didn't seem to me to be sort of in keeping. That seemed like almost like the kind of thing you might, like if it was an article in a magazine, you might have a box that would say, you know, serial killers in the Midwest in the 70s. A sidebar, like a timeline or something. Yeah, exactly. I think they did a good job with taking what seemed like an improbable hypothesis and explaining like it really could have happened. I think they did a good job with that. However, it came right after the If Not Bob episodes, which were so strong. So strong. That it just, you know, even though they did a good case and you're like, oh, well, I suppose, yeah, you know, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility a serial killer could have done it. It already had just had this masterpiece of. of Are you saying it was journalism. anticlimactic? Uh, I, I think it was a denouement. I, no, I, I don't know if I'm actually saying that because I don't want to imply that it was a bad episode. I'm thinking it was actually very well done, and I think they had a tough job. You know, even if they, you didn't, you didn't have the stuff with you know these great interviews with these other potential suspects. 
you still would start off with a maybe it's a serial killer and everybody rolls their eyes, but you know they laid out a good uh, argument for it in a way that still kept your attention. Now, Laura, I just want to talk to you real quickly about Moser with a G, <laughs> a G that's just as silent as he is. Oh snap! Um, what did you think of her interactions with Moser's office? What did you think of the interaction she had with him when she was literally chasing him through a building? What do you think of the fact that he won't even say no comment to this crime reporter at the Cincinnati Inquirer? This is absurd. I, I want to go like smack this guy. I mean, I'm just like, what is his problem? But that that was my favorite scene. I loved when because this whole time we're listening and he still won't comment and still won't comment. And you hear these messages where she's like, well, he's in a meeting. And she's like, well, do you know when he'll be out? No, I really can't say. And you're like getting more and more irritated. So there was a great sense of satisfaction to me when she finally, you know, got him and we heard his voice. And for some reason, I just had like Boss Hog from the Dukes of Hazard in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I felt like, I mean, when she said, when you were speaking with her, that somebody else at the newspaper is going to follow up on that. That's something that I would like to see what, if anything, comes of that. Because that guy's an elected official. That was ridiculous. What did you think of that, Kevin? Well, I mean, I think I I was actually grateful that they explained why he may be holding a grudge. Against the paper. Against the paper. That doesn't matter, though. Well, no, but it explains why you're, you're being petulant. About right. it. And, and it was like at the end of, of episode seven where she actually goes or they actually go to the office. I'm in my head like screaming like sit in a chair. Wait, 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 wait. You know, do the Woodward and Bernstein thing and sit there and wait him out. And when it didn't happen, I'm like, wait, isn't he a prosecutor? Isn't there like a doesn't have to be in court at any time? Doesn't have to be out of the building. Can't you confront him then? And sure enough, they, and they go ahead and do that. I'm like, yes. Because I'm also wondering why perhaps, I think it sounded like that some of the production help they got was from somebody from public radio. Just with the mixing. For that the was mixing. it, yeah. I was like, why can't, you know, I'm thinking, can't you have a friend, another colleague at another outlet, like, try to, like, broach the subject? Like, he's going to, if he's not going to take your calls, maybe he'll take somebody else's. Now, I just. No, but he deserved to get a cover. And I would have been way worse at the elevator. Yeah. I would have given him every tough question. But here's the thing that I, I just want to get your reaction to. Because, you know, I work in a newsroom now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of politics going on right now. And as you know from, like, the stories I tell you when I come home from work, like, sometimes people are pissed off at, like, some story we wrote, right? Like, they don't think that we were accurate or whatever, but we always were, by the way. That's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. (laughs) They still do have to take your call the next time. They do. And even if they're going to be jerks or reticent to talk, if you give someone the opportunity to say no comment and they don't, and they also won't let you make an appointment... And they also just will say, I'm not talking. What is that? You're, you're inviting belligerent coverage if you can't act like a professional. You're, you're just inviting that kind of retaliatory coverage. It's, it sounds like they're staying on the up and up. You know, they're not really doing anything. You know, they're not investigating his finances just for the fun of it. With any organization, you know, I'm in public relations and you you work with relationships with the media are important, right? Relationships with the media are important, even if you disagree with the story, even if you hate them, even if you hate them, even if you feel like (laughs) over and over again, they're getting it wrong. You can't control how reporters write the story. You can only control your message. Right. And, you know, if you just want to say no comment and, you know, this is the kind of thing, too, where you could everybody else is just saying it's an open investigation. No comment. Or I don't know anything about it. No comment. Yeah, so no, he I'm just saying, comes off as a straight, transparent jerk. Yeah, I'm not trying to give him a, an out. I'm, I'm just saying that by doing that, 
he's inviting more poor coverage. Right. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know what his Twitter feed is like <laughs> these days. All these people like, hear the uh, way he treats you know, you know, it's kind of like, well, you reap what you sow. Right. So reporters get that vindictive that some do. Some, somebody big times you and you're just like, I'm going to screw this guy. Well, you're not screwing him. You're just saying what happened. So there, there's a difference yeah. between saying yeah. somebody is a jerk and was a jerk to me or saying this is a public official who is obligated to speak to the media. It won't even say no comment. That actually yeah. is a story. That actually is. That's not screwing him. You're just saying what happened. I mean, I think papers and news organizations think that the public is more interested in that than they actually are. I'll tell you, a podcast audience is interested in that in a way that a newspaper audience is not. I mean, if you look at what's happened to the prosecution or the sort of people who aren't seen to be transparent in other like justice like Mm -hmm. podcasts and making a murderer, this audience who's listening to this show is very interested in the fact that this guy won't even say no comment to this reporter. I have a hard time believing that if he knew that people were going to be listening to seven hours of this case and the effect that it had on people and and all this stuff, and then the last bit of it was going to be him just being a jerk and acting, you know, fairly unprofessionally. You know, if if that had been the setup for him, he'd known that, I assume he would say something. Toby, there was a person there with a microphone. It wasn't just her with a notepad. And no, 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 I understand that. But she gave him so many opportunities. I'm not I'm not trying to give him like a break, but I think his calculus on that would have been different if he'd known that this was going to be this big podcast instead of just. But you know what? He must have known because you know that the prosecutors and the cops and all the people involved in this case, they all talk to each other. Yep. So I'm sure he knew from that nice detective that was working on the case that she was talking to. I don't believe he didn't know what this was. It's just very troubling to me that somebody in that position would go to such lengths not to speak and to pretend like he doesn't know what's going on. They all talk. It's funny how we have a case of an, an unsolved murder of a woman and several viable suspects, and we have so much more animus for the district attorney <laughs> because he was a douchebag. I really do. By the way, Buzz Call has every right to not talk to her. That's his right, mm-hmm. right? Sure. He did talk to her, and he was like kind of jerky or whatever, but that is his right. He's a private citizen. It is your right to not speak to a reporter if you don't want to. It is mm-hmm. your right as a private citizen. It's not your right to do that if you are a public official. Well. Yeah, it might be. You mm. might. Yeah. You know what, though? It is their job. They're doing their job. And, you know, you can say accountability is like, I don't get reelected or whatever. That's fine. You might not get reelected. But, like, everybody who's run for office ever knows that you can do so much damage in the time that you're mm-hmm. in office that you really do have to at least put on a show of being accountable, even if you're not actually yeah. being accountable. I would just say, and maybe we should like move on, but media outlets have long memories. I don't know. It sounds like he's been there for quite a long time, and I don't know how many more years he has in the public or the private sector. But if there comes a time where something newsworthy happens, where he could be painted in a negative light, It's likely that there's a little more zeal put into that investigation by a reporter than otherwise. That was my question from before. Is like, is there really going to be this vindictiveness? You're more likely to believe a negative story about that person as a reporter. So I'll tell you, you know, sometimes you get tips in a newsroom about malfeasance or somebody being a jerk or somebody mistreating people. And you don't really pay a lot of attention to those tips unless you see a pattern 
he's giving her the pattern. Like he's giving not just her, but also the whole Inquirer staff and now a podcast audience of millions of people a pattern to point to that he's difficult. But if, if you're a DN, you have a good relationship with different reporters. A reporter may call you up and say, hey, you're about to arrest John Smith on this thing. What can you tell me? Now, if you've got a good reporter, you could say, Rebecca, can I talk to you off the record for a sec? Right. Look, we don't have the arrest warrant on this yet. Can you sit on this for 24 hours? I will call you as soon as we make the arrest. Right. And you probably will go, yeah, because then I'm going to get something. And this is how you get a good relationship going. But, you know, in this case, if he really would like to stop you for 24 hours, can you do me a solid here? Nope. Because, no, nope, boom, <laughs> right? Well, We're running the yeah. story. I'm running the story. <laughs> You can and comment or not. Yeah. It's not good practice. Well, it makes know, me want to fight the man. That's what it makes me want to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm fighting the man. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to Ohio. We do need to move on. I mean, I do think that we're going to talk about this more. I think there is going to be more accused. I think that when they have more material, they are going to release more content. At least that's the signal that I received from uh, Amber and Amanda. But they're going to wait until they have enough to mm-hmm. have it be something good. But I would love your guys, you know, sort of final thoughts. You know, we've had eight episodes so far. I want to know. If you're interested, if you're going to listen to more content, and if you want to assign that, I don't know, a letter grade, that would be really great. Kevin, what do you think? I'm giving it an A minus. Okay, why? Oh, I think it was great. I, f- I feel like you know my grading on the curve was has been all over the place, and I actually feel bad for giving Laura Lippman a B plus because I think the book was better. But um, <laughs> yeah, I you know I'm going to give it out of 100. I'm going to give it a 94. Is that an A minus? That's an A. That's an A. Yeah. Okay. That's it's an, an okay. A plus. It's an A. That's yeah. An a solid A. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it held my attention, and it was a great case, and it was presented very well, and it makes me want to hear how it really ends. So you're going to listen to more? If there's more comes out, I'm definitely listening. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I'd give it an A. Nice. I'd I'd listen to it. I mean, I think, again, as I said before, I think we've kind of reached the maturity of these podcasts. And so we're starting to get really good ones. You know, I don't find much to criticize. Although I did find, (laughs) talk about things that I was critical (laughs) of. I mean, I think it's, again, it's, it's just, it's nitpicking at what is basically just an extremely solid piece of work. What about you, Laura? I'll go for A minus because I feel like um, even though there's always room for improvement, I really liked it. I liked the way that the story was told. I liked the people that were telling the story, the details of the story. I also really liked the use of the little subtle background music while she was talking and narrating. I, I really liked it. I think out of all of the podcasts that we've listened to that were like searching for that next serial, there's been a couple that have come pretty close. I think this one might be the closest in terms of the type of content and the way it was told and the production value. I agree with you, and I'm going to give it an A for the same reason. I also think that their singular point of view, the fact that they had the family, the fact that they had Bob, the fact that she interviewed all three living potential suspects. We're not talking about people. We're talking to people. The transparency and reporting, I just love the way it was put together. And I felt this way before I talked to Amber. Very often I tend to like things more after I meet the person who made them, but I actually liked it a lot before I talked to her. So uh, I'm very comfortable with my A. Kevin, that was a really fun rewind. Oh, yeah, sure. So what are we doing next week on the show? We've got two great things that we've been watching. I don't know if they're great yet. We'll find out. We'll find out. One of them is from Netflix. It's the documentary Pray Away. Mm -hmm. And the other is the HBO series The White Lotus. Can't wait. And I'm not going to drop the name, but we have a special substitute panelist for Crime Writers On. Okay, so for all of us at Crime Writers On, thanks so much for listening to this week's Rewind. We will catch you later. 
Partners in Crime Media.